Something's in the water. Neoliberalism, racism, and environmental injustice in Flint, Michigan. All of the opinions expressed in the podcast are my own, and they do not represent the opinions of the University of Wisconsin. Hi, my name is Casey Olson. I'm a student at UW-Madison, and I'm studying English, Sociology, and Environmental Studies. So in this podcast, I'm going to be talking about those last two things, sociology and the environment, or the study of it, and I'm going to be talking about those topics through the lens of environmental injustice and the water crisis in Flint, Michigan. Specifically, I'll be talking about the events in Flint as a result of structural racism and neoliberal policy, both of which were ongoing for decades, if not centuries, before the events of the actual water crisis as we've heard of it unfolded. Those phenomena interacted with one another to create a quintessential case of environmental injustice. I imagine most people listening have heard of Flint. Flint is a place we all know as the town where bad water happened. We all know that bad water happened in Flint, and I think we all know that it's a big deal because bad water happened to a lot of people, and those people tried to say something about it, and nothing was done for a long time. For those of us who have never had trouble accessing clean drinking water, it's hard to wrap our minds around something so central to our needs as human and something we're used to having right there being taken away or making us sick. To say that bad water happened in Flint also begs the question, who did it happen to and who caused it to happen? Before diving in, I also want to briefly explain the terms environmental justice and injustice instead of just giving an example of an instance where an injustice took place. This phrase was new to me when I started my environmental studies, and while from my limited perspective, it seems to be gaining traction as a framework, it's important to know what we're talking about here. So a very simplified definition of environmental justice is as follows, and this is from Professor Robert Bullard, who has written extensively on the topic and has been a key figure in the movement. Environmental justice embraces the principle that all people and communities are entitled to equal protection of our environmental health, employment, education, housing, transportation, and civil rights laws. It's important to know that environmental justice is different than what's considered but is not necessarily mainstream environmentalism. It's not just about what we think of as nature or as wilderness. It's about people and communities and their health and safety too. We can consider environmental injustice then to be situations in which those rights of people who tend to have fewer resources and less power have been breached or violated. Another term you might hear is environmental racism. Although the two aren't necessarily interchangeable, there is considerable literature to back up the argument that these instances of injustice happen more frequently to people of color. People of color have really been central to and have led the environmental justice movement, so that's going to be something important to keep in mind as we learn more about Flint. Who is getting harmed and who is working to correct those systems that cause harm? So as I mentioned briefly at the beginning, something really important about Flint is that what happened there, as is the case with many instances of environmental injustice, is a culmination of a lot of policies and processes and philosophies that have taken place and developed over the last couple centuries. The Flint water crisis is the result of systemic racism, neoliberalism, 
and the way that those two forces have interacted with one another. What I'll be doing is giving a condensed history of some of those things that happened in Flint that resulted in people having their water supply poisoned, people speaking up about their lived experiences, and those people being ignored by those with the power to do something about it. I'll also be explaining neoliberalism in a bit more detail in order to make the connection between those ideas and policies and what happened in Flint. Flint background. How did we get here? <clears throat> As some people might know, in the early and mid 20th century, Flint was a bustling town with a booming automobile industry. Actually, Flint's official nickname is Automobile City. And so the city itself was successful for a period of time, but eventually saw what many American cities did, which was deindustrialization and white flight. After World War II, large numbers of white, middle, upper-class Americans moved out of cities that were more racially diverse or becoming more diverse. Those who could afford to leave to the suburbs or elsewhere did. This is known as white flight. In Flint, this was largely under the guise of urban renewal. So-called slums were getting cleaned up or highways were being placed. In black neighborhoods, homes were underappraised and owners were undercompensated by the city and state while being bought out for highway placement. Meanwhile, white suburban neighborhoods were booming. And then companies which had historically provided work in those urban centers would move, outsourcing jobs to a place where they could pay less for the same labor. Then you have a town that has fewer resources and fewer work options, and often the inability for people to travel or move outside of the city for work. And so it's important to talk about what happened in Flint, and it's also important to talk about GM, General Motors. The GM plant in Flint plays a big role in the making of the city as it exists now. People may know that there was a GM plant which employed a huge number of Flint residents, around 80,000 people in the 1970s. In 1986, though, the GM plant in Flint was shut down and a big portion of the city, about 30,000 people, lost their jobs. It was a huge hit. I mention it because GM and its presence and then that plant closing contributed to a devastated economic landscape in Flint. As of 2016, there were about 10,000 GM employees in the Flint area, which means that the 30,000 number I mentioned before was just the beginning. In total, about 70,000 GM jobs have been lost in Flint since the 80s. <clears throat> Later on, during the crisis, GM will benefit enormously from their corporate power. So it's important to note their impact on the city of Flint. A look at the racial makeup of Flint over the past 50 years illustrates the white flight that I mentioned. According to social scientist Laura Polito, in 1970, whites comprised 70% of Flint residents. Today, they're 37%. I bring this up because when we talk about these instances of environmental injustice, it's important to consider that as there are people who are actively being harmed by injustice, there are also those who benefit from that imbalance. It's not always as simple as the city dwellers versus suburbanites, but as we learn more about Flint, we'll see how these different people got access to different water and different treatment. The outcomes were completely different depending on socioeconomic status. And then due to structural racism and its impacts, that can also mean outcomes are different depending on race. The water crisis. Flint was an economic crisis for a long time. 
It was an impoverished town with a lot of abandoned buildings. A lot of people were financially insecure and unemployed. The financial crisis of 2008 exacerbated things. For people who were already struggling, things tended to get worse. In 2010, Rick Snyder, a Republican, was elected governor of Michigan. And this is where the Flint water crisis, as you've likely heard about it, begins to play out. Some key things happen. Snyder is elected governor. Snyder declares a state of financial emergency in Flint, and Snyder appoints an emergency manager. That is, somebody who is given control and power and can override all local decision-making. There are 16 states in the U.S. that have a provision which allows for the authority of city politicians to be overridden by emergency managers when appointed to do so. This happens in times of financial crisis. Michigan is one of those states. This emergency manager, there were a total of four appointed between 2011 and 2015, who has a whole lot of power all of a sudden, is tasked with saving money and getting the city out of crisis at all costs. So where do those savings come from? They come from, in this case, the water supply. The emergency manager, Ed Kurtz, decides in 2012 to switch the water drinking water supply from Lake Huron to the Flint River in order to save the city money. But austerity can be dangerous because when somebody who is not being held accountable, the emergency manager in this case, is making decisions about where to cut costs, Somebody has to bear the burden of that. Somebody has to pay. In this case, Ed Kurtz predicted that over 25 years, this switch in water supply would save the city $300 million. However, at the time the switch was made, there would still be two years until the construction of the new pipeline was completed and the water would be ready. The financial situation was considered dire, so the next emergency manager, named Darnell Early, made the hasty decision to switch the water source right away, despite knowledge that the water from the river was contaminated. The authority he had as emergency manager allowed him to do so without the standard processes for citywide decision-making or input from the community. So a brief synopsis of what happened. The city wanted to save money. The emergency managers hastily switched to a different water supply in order to do so. The city did not pay to have that water treated or tested properly. The water reacted with the existing lead pipes and people immediately noticed that something was wrong. So the water is discolored, the water smells and tastes bad. Residents notice right away and speak up right away. They bring in water to city hall in order to get the attention of local legislation. But the message from local politicians and environmental agencies like the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality is that the water is fine. If anything, they say not enough time has passed and that the water plant employees had only had a crash course in treating water. At this point, some people are buying bottled water or filtering water and some people are using the contaminated water. And people are getting sick. People are saying that their eyes are burning in the shower. It's important to keep in mind here that Flint is not doing well financially and neither are many of its residents. It's already easy to imagine how systemic racism and inequity can perpetuate this issue that's happening here. Who can afford fancy filters, a constant influx of water bottles? It's probably not the people who are already struggling as it is. Conditions that are already in place are only exacerbated when things like this happen, and the ability to deal with the situation is contingent on income, on socioeconomic status. 
This goes on for quite some time. The people of Flint voice concerns about what they see and what they are experiencing, and various officials and people in power assure them that nothing is wrong. Steve Bush, the director of the MDEQ, actually tells residents that if the water is making them sick, it's essentially their concern and it's something to figure out with their own doctors. Meanwhile, GM speaks up about their water at their plant. They're noticing that it's corroding vehicle parts and that they need their supply switched back. So GM's supply switch gets switched back immediately. City Hall gets filtered water and at the same time, city officials and agencies keep telling people in Flint that their water is fine. As we discussed, GM has so much to do with the lack of power people have in that town and the lack of resources. Runoff from GM is part of the reason the water is contaminated in the first place, but here's GM getting their water supply switched back instantly. At this point, even a research study done by Virginia Tech, specifically a professor, Mark Edwards, shows how high the levels of lead in the water are. Not only that, Edward, Edwards notices that the city had previously flushed lead through the system and cherry-picked houses in order to skew data in their favor and disprove the assertion, assertions of concerned citizens. These Virginia Tech results, too, are explained away and kept secret from the public. More studies are done. One resident, Leanne Walters, was integral to these studies in this investigation. Walters noticed that her kids were getting sick after swimming in their swimming pool, and she asked a utility technician in Flint, Mike Glasgow, to test the lead in her house. It was extremely high, and Glasgow kept testing every week and was finding that the lead levels were increasing. More tests throughout the city revealed lead levels to be anywhere from 7 to 10,000 times over the legal limit. Given that residents like Walters were making these discoveries and the city was still not changing the water, she and others decided to reach out to Erin Brockovich, uh, who's known for her legal success in a different case of water contamination. You've likely heard of the movie Erin Brockovich about her. Eventually, the water is brought to the attention of a local doctor, Mona Hanna Atisha, who does a study on lead levels in the blood of local children. And again, they're incredibly high. And again, attempts are made to ignore her by the city, but Hannah Atisha stands by her findings and eventually is a key player in terms of getting Governor Snyder to actually change the water supply back. But this is after 18 months of Flint residents telling the city that they were being poisoned and 18 months of being denied clean water and the truth. If you're already familiar with the term neoliberalism and the policies that go along with the ideology, you can probably see where that's happening in the story of Flint. If you aren't, I'm going to give you a quick breakdown. The thing about neoliberalism is that it can be hard to describe because it's not necessarily one simple or coherent idea. However, I'm going to lean on scholar Wendy Brown, who at times herself borrows from philosopher Michel Foucault, to try and make sense of the philosophy in order to connect it to Flint. Neoliberalism is an economic policy and policies rooted in neoliberalism tend toward austerity, saving money, and deprioritizing government regulations. This could be environmental regulations, it could be market regulations. Think privatization and free markets or the marketization of the political. This privileges competition over equality, for one. To quote Brown, when the political rationality of neoliberalism is fully realized, 
When market principles are extended to every sphere, inequality becomes legitimate, even normative, in every sphere. And this is one area in which neoliberalism can ultimately be seen as a threat to democracy, one that infringes upon people's fundamental rights. Brown, again, says, Competition as the central principle of market rationality also means political subjects lose guarantees of protection by the liberal state. Some will triumph and some will die as a matter of social and political principle. Flint is sort of a perfect storm of neoliberalism in this way. Here's one way to think about it, and I'm going to quote writer Jamie Peck speaking in 2012 here. Financial responsibility for public goods is passed down from national to state and local governments. The logical priority that scalar dumping, which is essentially that responsibility getting passed down, sets in motion is clear. Cash-strapped cities must either raise revenue through taxes, fees, or service costs for public goods, or they must cut spending. In this case, the water supply is switched from its prior source of Lake Huron to the Flint River, which, number one, people knew was heavily contaminated in large part from GM plant runoff, and number two, the water was not subsequently treated. Remember that whole thing of fewer regulations under neoliberal policy? And number three, the infrastructure of Flint was already not well positioned for contaminated, corrosive water. The pipes in many homes are lead. And that itself is certainly not unrelated from forces of systemic racism. In cities with lower income on average, people, more people below the poverty line and more residents of color, serious structural issues like lead pipes, which can easily be corroded, causing lead to be leached into the drinking water, are more prevalent. Flint fits this description, and Flint is no exception to this tendency. Why does injustice happen? And so something that's really important to untangle here is why does this happen? Did people in power intentionally poison Flint residents? Did they assume Flint residents would not notice, not speak up, not be heard? Why did it take doctors, scientists, Aaron Brockovich's name to enact change? A group of social justice scholars, including Stephanie Laddie, address that nuance and speak to the racialized nature of this injustice by suggesting that, as a necropolitical site, Flint residents, too, are considered always already toxic and thus impossible to further poison. Indeed, the impossibility of being further poisoned is already imagined as a condition of non-human existence. It is impossible to poison a non-human thing. Those scholars importantly emphasize the way Black residents were treated less humanely than a corporation was, GM. It is disturbing to consider that while every consideration was given to how Flint's corrosive water was eating away at metal car parts, so little was given to what this water was doing to human parts. Power is certainly an important dynamic here too. Those with credentials of science, scientist or doctor or those at GM hold much more power than the residents of Flint. And so even though Flint residents saw what was happening before them and were speaking to that, the government officials and agencies, also wielding more power than residents, didn't listen until somebody with more authority tried to hold them accountable. Interestingly, a very similar water crisis unfolded in a town called Sebring, Ohio, around the same time that the Flint crisis was taking place. Sebring is 97% white, although it is also a very poor manufacturing town, 
and it took government officials five months to respond compared to Flint's 18 months. Five months is still, of course, too long, but it would seem that power conferred through white privilege was certainly a factor. Malini Ranganathan, a scholar of environmental justice, makes a point that we should consider that instances of environmental racism are likely not aberrations, as she puts it, or even collateral damage of our governing systems. She also cautions against assuming malevolence from individual actors like Governor Rick Snyder, that, for example, he was racist, so he did a racist thing. Instead, it's important to consider that racism is built into existing systems and has been central to the structures and institutions that make the world that we live in. Flint was created out of colonialism, segregation, deindustrialization, neoliberalism. When a city like Flint implements neoliberal policy, those with the least power and fewest resources are the ones who are most impacted by things like austerity measures. And with an emergency manager in power, even when those residents are speaking up and speaking out, they're being ignored and denied agency in a way that's written into state law. The emergency manager is in complete control. This both explains and complicates things. It means we can't just solve racism or solve environmental, environmental racism as an isolated issue. What happens now? An immediate concern in Flint is whether the water is currently safe and if so, will residents ever be able to trust it again or trust their government? The city set out in 2016 to replace all the lead pipes and that's been a very slow process. It hasn't been straightforward at all. The city's records of which pipes are lead are incomplete. Further, the national firm tasked with figuring that out has had about a 15% success rate. According to an article in Politico, the firm would have had more success choosing pipes to fix at random. That's a really bad track record. And so people have had to take it upon themselves to figure out and often pay for the pipes to be replaced themselves. Sounds like once again, costs that should be taken on by the state, by the government, are being externalized and falling on the people of Flint. This process, along with the months of denial and lies and obfuscation of reality on the government's behalf, make Flint residents completely justified in their mistrust. A Michigan State Senator and Flint resident, Jim Ananish, admits, I can't tell somebody they should trust claims that the water is safe because I don't trust them, and I have more information than most people. Science and logic would tell me that it should be okay, but people have lied to me. Former Governor Rick Snyder, along with seven other former governor officials, is facing criminal charges. All eight officials have been charged with a total of 42 counts, including perjury and involuntary manslaughter. Children and adults in Flint are still dealing with repercussions of lead contamination. People are sick, people have learning disability, and people have died, to name a few of those repercussions. Fixing that trust among the people of Flint will be more daunting than fixing the pipes itself or even putting people in jail. It feels like an impossible task, but one that should be prioritized in the interest of working towards a healthy democracy. There are residents of Flint who are still fighting for their city. Before we go, I want to highlight a girl, a 13-year-old named Mari Kopenny, who has been doing so from a young age. In 2015, she famously wrote to then-President Obama asking him to do something about lead contamination. Since then, she has continued to raise awareness about the situation and the lead pipes in Flint. She's fundraised for the people of Flint. She's partnered with a water filtration company called HydroViv 
to get water filters to low-income families throughout the United States. Copany is now known as Little Miss Flint. To quote Copany speaking in 2018, I'm 11. My generation will fix this mess of a government. Watch us. Will the government invest in fixing itself, or will people of color and people without resources continue to try to fix it for them? We can hope for the former, but in the meantime, the Flint residents should be recognized for not only what they've been through, but what they've done in response. Without people like Leanne Walters and Mari Kopany, Flint would be in a far worse place than it already is, and that's what happens when a system is racist and residents and local government are denied agency to advocate for themselves and for their communities. Here are my works cited. Bracton Booker in 2021 for NPR, ex-Michigan Governor Rick Snyder and eight others criminally charged in Flint water crisis. Wendy Brown's 2015 book, Undoing the Demos, Neoliberalism's Stealth Revolution. Ryan Felton in 2017, What General Motors Did to Flint for Jalopnik. Stephanie Laddie, Megan Scribe, Elena Peters, and Anthony Morgan in 2016, Not Enough Human at the Scenes of Indigenous and Black Dispossession, dispossession for Critical Ethnic Studies. Amy Krings, Dana Kornberg, and Aaron Lane in 2019, Organizing Under Austerity, How Residents' Concerns Became the Flint Water Crisis for Critical Sociology. Paul Mohai in 2018, Environmental Justice and the Flint Water Crisis for Michigan Sociological Review. Michael Moore's 1989 film, Roger and Me. Camila Newton in 2021, Flint's water crisis is far from over. Here's how 13-year-old Mari Kopenny is taking matters into her own hands. That was from Yahoo Life. Denise Narcisse in 2017, Beyond Treading Water, Bringing Water Justice to America's Urban Poor for Race, Gender, and Class. Laura Polito, 2016, Flint, Environmental Racism and Racial Capitalism for Capitalism, Nature, Socialism. Malini Ranganathan, 2016, Thinking with Flint, Racial Liberalism and the Roots of an American Water Tragedy. That was also from Capitalism, Nature, Socialism. Derek Robertson in 2020, Flint has clean water now. Why won't people drink it? For Politico. Morgan Robinson in 2018, Thirst for the American Dream, The Lost City of Flint, for Michigan Sociological Review. And finally, the 11th Annual Shorty Awards, Mari Kopenner, Kopenny, Winner in Activism, from the Shorty Awards 2019. Finally, I'd like to give a big shout out to my incredible instructor, Jill Richardson, and all of my wonderful classmates from Environmental Stewardship and Social Justice, spring 2021. Thank you everybody so much.